The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 32 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 17th of March, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I am joined by an aviation couple that have had the opportunity to share their journey in aviation together. I first met Jerry in 2017 when she was just getting back into the airline world after 13 years away from the profession. She and her husband, Ty, have been able to navigate the many downturns and celebrate great accomplishments, all while raising a family. From sound engineering, to space camp, to civil air patrol, and more, they both have been an inspiration to me for many years, and today, I was able to interview them. Their journeys have been filled with love and sacrifice. At a time when what we need more of is positivity and celebration, I am honored to share our discussion with all of you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. What a week this has been. Most of us have been feeling the anxiety and the stresses associated with the events surrounding this coronavirus pandemic. It has threatened our way of life, our well-being, and our daily routines. And today, I want to take a break from all of those scary thoughts that surround us. You may be plugging away at work, working a double or triple overtime shift right now, like a lot of my friends over at Costco are doing. Or under self-quarantine or house arrest, like most of my friends and family in the Bay Area are in the middle of right now. Either way, let's take a break from all that noise and bring some positive and inspirational stories to your day. Here at Squawkadent, I have been delighted in bringing to all of you examples of an aviator's journey in a career field that is mostly filled with a shared passion to soar above the clouds and peer away at the starry night from 37,000 feet. Today's story is of no exception to all of that. Joining us on this episode of Squawk Ident is a spectacular couple that have shared not only a home, but have also shared a career in aviation. They have been together for over 20 years and have a wonderful story to tell. He started out as an audio engineer and decided one day to start taking flying lessons. 
Working his way through his CFI, he instructed, he flew freight, and then he achieved a position at Transstates Airlines. He upgraded about a year later, and while in upgrade class, met the love of his life. She is a graduate from the University of Central Missouri in aviation management, a former Transstates Airlines pilot, a former Sandpiper Regional pilot, and currently a pilot for an airline we call Domestic Air. She currently holds type ratings at a Jetstream 32, an Embraer 145, and a Boeing 737. She is also a mother of four beautiful young adults, an avid runner, and a total rock star. She's been a LOSA observer, a LOSA analyst, and a pilot mentor. She's also involved with women's aviation and the Civil Air Patrol. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Ty and Jerry. Hey guys, how you doing? And hey, welcome. Tony. Thanks. So guys, you know, this is so exciting. I've been very excited to be able to sit down with you and kind of talk about your journey. Been looking forward to it. And, you know, as we mentioned, it's kind of a tough time right now. So let's bring some positivity to it. You know, Ty, you kind of started out in a very interesting career field, a little similar to what I was going through with when I also changed careers. You know, you were in audio engineering. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it was a lot of fun and it, it was a good, it was a good thing to do in my early twenties. Um, I, I did mostly live sound. So I worked in a lot of nightclubs. I did some concert venues. Um, my social life was basically work and that, that was fun. Um, but it, it, it ran its course and I, found that I really enjoyed flying a whole lot more. That was, I started out flying as a hobby that, uh, I just continued, just kept going with it. Yeah. Here I am. What got you to uh, walk into that flight center or flight school that first day? Was it someone suggesting that you do it or just the curiosity got the best of you and you just walked in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, kind of both. Uh, I always wanted to fly. I never really pictured myself as an airline pilot or uh, even an airplane pilot. I just thought, man, that'd be cool to just fly. And uh, uh, maybe maybe I watched too much Superman when I was a kid. I don't know. But uh, I was at work one day, and one of the guys that I worked with had taken a ride on a small airplane the day before, and he was all excited about it. He said, hey, a friend of mine took me up in a small airplane and I said, you know, I got a couple of bucks in my pocket. I, I think I'm going to go do the same thing. So I, I literally called the first flight school in the phone book and said, hey, what's it take to get a pilot's license? They said, come on out. And I did. Yeah. Then was it a Cessna uh, program or anything, something else? It, uh, eventually it was. I, I soloed in a Tomahawk. It, you know, it was a very small flight school. They had... Uh, they had one Tomahawk and I think they had two 150s, Cessna 150s. And uh, I soloed in the Tomahawk. I lost my instructor because things were moving a little bit back then, um, and as they tend to do. So my next instructor, I think, was uh, didn't love the Tomahawk, <laughs> let's say. So transitioned me over to the 150. <laughs> And I finished up my private in the 150. And, you know, that process, we're talking, what year was this? Is this somewhere in the 80s or? 
Oh, yeah, uh, early '90s. So early '90s, yeah. Yeah, my um, actually, my first hour, the first hour in my logbook was 1990. I think it took me about a year of saving up every week or two, take a lesson, mm-hmm. and eventually, I, I finally finished my private. And by the time I got my private done, I decided I was all in. So, but it, it took me a year to get that first ticket. Yeah, and then you were mentioning to me that you know you you worked your way through all your ratings into a CFI. And then you had to take a little bit of break because of finances, which is absolutely understandable. And we've all uh, that have gone through the process, especially around that time frame, uh, did that. What were you doing while you were kind of in that pause transition? Were you working at all? Or? Sort of in, in limbo there. Yeah, I, uh, well, I was still doing audio. So I, mm-hmm. I worked at night and um, I did, I, I worked live sound at night. I went to a 141 school to continue my um, my flying education right up through CFI. At at the end of it, there there weren't a lot of jobs, so I, I actually joined the Civil Air Patrol and and got a little experience that way. Um, continued working at night doing audio. At uh, then I finally landed my first CFI job, and what I did then at at that point I. Uh, Oh, I needed to get my dog so I had a student that owned his own airplane that didn't mind if I took it, and I took his airplane, did a check ride in that. Um, let's see, I I did a uh, weekend course to get my multi, one of those uh, kind of quick all ATP type deals. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got my I got my MEI, um, I got my MEI on a recurrent. Uh, one one thirty five ride. Oh, so I I did a I had a one thirty five checkout. The flight school I worked for had a a small charter operation, and I I flew the Navajo. So on my early check ride, I said, "Hey, can we get a Fed in here? I'd like to maybe pick up a rating." So the Fed came in, gave me my ride, and uh, signed off my MEI. Wow, that, that was smart. That so that that was a pretty good deal. Yeah, yeah. And this Cheap, is uh, what uh, airport was. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you have to be creative, <laughs> especially when you're trying to build hours and get ratings. And, you know, it's not a cheap oh, thing yeah. to do. It's an expensive uh, process. So, you know, that was actually very smart for you to do that. What airport was this where you were doing most of your training? I, the airport that I was teaching out of was, is a very small field just north of Philadelphia called Wings Field. Oh. Very cool. And and at the time, and I don't know, I, I know they're still there because I fly over and I see some activity when I go into Philly, but um, at the time they were, that airport was the oldest airport in the U.S. that in continuous operation in the U.S. So um, they, yeah. that was kind of a neat little tidbit there. Yeah. Yeah. And did, have you been back at all uh, recently to check it out or? Yeah, you know, a few years later, I I did stop in and nobody was there. I everybody had moved on, and uh, I didn't know a single person at the yeah. airport. Yeah, so, which which is definitely happens, especially uh, you know, with the progress that has been made with hiring over the years. And I mean, it's kind of hard to to stay in one place until you kind of reach that final point where at least where you think you're going to settle for a long period of time. 
And you were uh, you were working your way up through your ratings. You got your MEI. You you flight instructed for quite some time. Was it that at the same airport there? Yeah. That so I I taught out of that airport for a good two and a half years. Um, and then on my oh boy, back then, man, you, you know, you worked your butt off. Um, I I would instruct six days a week. They gave us one day off, but we got a. Uh, all the instructors got the option to be on call for the charter department on your day off. Mm. So I, I basically worked seven days a week. And uh, when I got enough multi-time, a friend of mine worked at an airport, um, at Reading Airport, which is just maybe an hour away from Wingsfield. Uh-huh. And uh, he was flying freight and asked me to come and sit in the right seat with him so I could build up a little bit of multi-time. It was a part 91 operation, um, uh, flying pharmaceuticals around. Oh, yeah. I got to log a little bit of, uh, Cessna time that way, a little, uh, 310 time. Oh, 310, yeah. And that's how I got multi-time. Do you have any, uh, harrowing experiences in the 310 with weather or maintenance or anything? <sighs> uh, not at that company. Um, I, I moved around a, a couple of times. I, I worked for three different freight companies. Uh, the last one that I worked for, I did have a, um, I blew a cylinder in the 310. That was uh, almost a non-event. The engine kind of kept running, and I I shut it down uh, out of precaution, but it just kind of made a bang and uh, wasn't producing as much power, so I shut it down. VMC, not a real big deal. Uh, the one thing that did happen there, though, is I, I landed on ice. This was up in um, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I touched down on ice, and it was it was very slick ice. I I did that um, reverted rubber hydroplaning mm. that we read about. You know, when you're getting your ratings, yeah, it, it melted the tires on me. I I was totally not prepared for that. Um, I was prepared for it to be slippery, so it was, you know, landing was no big deal. But then tagging off the runway, but um, but um, but um, because the tires just melted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little flat spot there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jerry, during this time, somewhere around here, you were attending school, right? Going to uh, to an aviation-based university there. A little bit of Central Missouri time there. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I started out a little bit earlier than that flying. Um, I was 16. I was looking back in my logbook. I was 16, and I'd always wanted to fly, and I don't know, I don't know why. I went to um, an aviation camp. I was looking through pictures recently. I went to um, it was called Aviation Challenge, and I don't even really remember what we did, but. <laughs> We saw, we went to some aviation museum. Can't even tell you where it was. Um, but I did that. I went to space camp. Um, I was lucky enough to wow. go there. That's so cool. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm back now. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to learn how to fly. And I talked to my parents about it. And my dad had always wanted to learn how to fly, which I didn't really know that i didn't really understand that you know um he would actually want to learn how to fly so we started learning how to fly together 
Mm. So, so I was you and your dad. 16 when I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was 16. Um, we started taking flying. I took a few. I took a few intro flights. Didn't start getting serious till more till I was closer to 17. Um, so I was a junior when I started, a senior in high school when I started flying more seriously. But we started flying at the same little airport. It was in Fenton, Missouri, called Weiss Airport, and it's not even there anymore. Uh-huh. Um, they it flew the final short final was right over a highway. So they, they took it away and now it's got all kinds of factory um yeah uh, warehouses. That's sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, because every now and again we'll drive by when we visit um visit home. Yeah. Um, so that's so, you started out at a young age. I mean, and your dad and you know, your family kind of helped you go after this, uh, this dream, this, uh, you know, adventure and aviation and, and wow, space camp. I mean, that's amazing. And the fact that you, you did some training with your father, you know, we'll talk about bonding time. Is he still flying or, or what, how's that he's working? Not, he's not flying anymore, but he went all the way through CFI. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, he, and he taught for a little while at, um, little airport near their home. Um, and then my mom flying with him all the time, wanted to get, she got her private pilot license too. Very good. And also a very good idea. Uh, I don't think we've kind of mentioned this yet in the show. Um, but, uh, for a general aviation purposes, if you're out there flying along and you're flying with your family and, you know, especially those I've had students in the past in my days of instructing as well, where they went out and bought an airplane and said, yeah, every weekend we're going to go up to a cabin that we bought and we're going to fly up there and the whole family is going to be on board. Well, I always used to caution them saying, okay, that's great. You've, you're instrument rated, you're whatever you are, privately, private pilot license, but somebody else in the airplane needs to be familiar with at least being able to talk on the radio and land. And the fact that your father kind of got your mom into it to the point where she got a private pilot license, that's, mm-hmm. that's not only smart, that's safe. And that's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they would come up eventually when I, so I got my private pilot license my senior year of high school. And then the next year when I went away to college, they would come up, they would fly up a lot of weekends and come up and we'd go fly together or do some uh, safety pilot stuff for each other. And um, so it was a, it was a good way to, to visit and spend time together doing something we all loved. And how did that progress into your further ratings? Um, I flew, so the school I went to, Central Missouri State at the time, uh, did have a flight department. I started out flying in their, um, in their flight department the first semester. And then for the second semester, my first year, I got an internship at an airport down the road, a, a um, Part 91 school. Um, doing some safety related stuff for the little, the flight school there. And, um, my boss there, who's uh, still my friend and works at legacy airlines with you. Um, he said, if he gave me a deal where if I finished up my ratings there and worked for him, um, for at least a year after, uh, I finished school that, I got a deal on my, on my flying 
on, on my ratings. Oh, cool. So I did that. So I start, I finished the rest of my ratings with him. Um, I did my instrument commercial and uh, most of my CFI. And I actually finished up my CFI that my last summer after I graduated um, back in St. Louis. Mm. Um, so you were continuously I, working on your ratings throughout school, throughout your college days. and Right. Yeah. And that turned out to uh, give you an opportunity to instruct, was it at Columbia Regional? Yeah, so I, I finished, I, I quite instructed in Sedalia for almost two years and did some Part 91. It was all in a single engine 172, but there was an architecture firm um, that we flew around mm. uh, to some local sites. But then um, eventually got a job in Columbia, Missouri, where they had... Um, I did start just flight instructing for them in singles, but they had the opportunity to get some multi-time. So that's why I went there. Mm. They had a Baron that I eventually did uh, some 135 flights in. Mm. Okay. So you were, you were working on getting some charter time and some instruction time. And, and how long were you doing that in Columbia? That was right about a year. About a year. And then were you just applying to regionals to kind of get your foot in the door or how did that process work to, okay, here you are, you're instructing, you're building time. You've got a, a, a load of students that are keeping you busy and you're constantly, you know, submitting applications. And at that time it was, I don't know, what was the, the primary method was with airlineapps.com or something like that, or to just kind of get them out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it was, I can't even remember what the application process was like. Yeah, was there even a? I feel like it was still paper. I, I think it was. I <laughs> I don't remember aviationapps.com back. I don't remember any .com back then. Even. Yeah. Well, this was uh, somewhere around late nineties. Yeah. 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 And so yeah, here, Kit Darby back then, you know. Yeah, walking in, walking in the airport, chief pilot's office, and all about who you knew, and can you walk my resume in for me? Yeah, yeah. and I didn't know anybody yet at the regionals at that point. So, um, but I had, I guess, you know, I had built up some multi-time, um, and, and flight instruction. And so, yeah, I got to ended up getting a job at trans States. Yeah. Um, as a first officer there for my first airline job. Yeah. So, and you were on the jet stream 32. So I was on the, yep. The jet stream 32. Okay. So there you were, oh. you're in new hire training class. This uh, handsome young man catches your eye, or was it the other way around? <laughs> hmm. Wait, you know, I think we ended up being kind of study partners. Um, Jerry was the youngest one in the class, and she ended up without a partner initially because they would always pair the new hires with the upgrades. And she was just kind of on her own, so she started hanging out with my partner and I, and, you know, kind of practicing flows and running checklists and doing all the study stuff and bouncing things off of each other. Um, and uh, we just started, we kind of hit it off and became really good friends initially before there was any kind of romance going on. Although I, I suspect she wanted me from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here you were studying together and you're, you know, Jerry, your first airline, Ty, was this your first airline as well? It is. Yeah, it was. It was. So you had been there, you know, 12 months or a little more than 12 months before you upgraded. So you had a little bit of seniority on her. Um, but here you are, you're studying first airline, and this is in an era before, you know, computer-based training, before EFBs, before online coursework. This was all, you know, here's a book, read the book, study the book, come to class. We're going to go over that system tomorrow. Read this part. We're going to go over that system in that era of really having to you know, study and read and, and put the time in. You weren't just studying questions to kind of get you past the test. And I hate to say that, but that really is the way AQP is kind of developed into. Um, so you really had to get a good, thorough, comprehensive knowledge, comprehensive understanding of systems because the test bank, as you know, in the past, this PTS, you know, you had a thousand questions and they're all fair game. Um, you know, this was kind of challenging and not everybody really succeeded in this because some people are just doers and the hands-on and not really coursework studying. What was, and this is a question for both of you, what was the biggest challenge in that process, in that studying on paper, getting that understanding? Like what parts of that were the most challenging for you? That I like that. That's, I'm a big... <laughs> I have notebooks still that I have from those airplanes, you know, from the Jetstream 32 and then eventually the 145. Um, I like taking notes. I like reading, you know, reading the book, taking notes. So to me, I prefer, I prefer it. It was, um, so you exactly were in your prime then you were really, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. easy, easier for you than, than say some. Yeah. maybe. But yes, I, I, I liked it. Yeah. How about you, Tyler? And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, and you touched on AQP, which is very different than where we came from, obviously, um, obvious to us, I don't, I don't know about to all the listeners, but um, I, I, I kind of think AQP is much better than it was back then. And, and I think the biggest challenge for me was the unpredictability of your Czech Airmen or your um, APD. Yeah, because those guys, you know, and I'll I'll say I, I won't call them out by name, but uh, we had two guys at Trans States that would compete over who got more busts. They thought that that was uh, they they thought that was a badge of pride. They thought that you know the more people we wash out, the stronger and safer our airline's going to be. It's it was that old school philosophy, yeah, where you you know you beat your pilots until they're better, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And and it's nice to live in a world that you don't have that anymore. Um, it's also nice to have survived that world, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah. But it, it was it was the unpredictability of it, and so going through like going through upgrade as a new hire, these guys had to know everything. As as an upgrade, you had to know everything plus all the nonsense <laughs> trivia about the airplane, and we would sit there the upgrade captains, we'd sit there just asking each other ridiculous questions just to see, you know, well, this guy might ask us. We, we had one guy that asked who made the seat belts in the airplane oh on God. the check <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so we'd just throw trivia at each other, trying to like 
okay, who can know the most ridiculous stuff about this airplane? None of it helped us. Right. <laughs> it's know? not going to help you uh, in an emergency. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to talk to that manufacturer when we land. <laughs> yeah. None of it helped you as a pilot, but it, I mean, it did help you exercise your brain muscle, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do prefer today's check rides over those oh. check rides. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't even call them check rides. What do I call them now? Uh, maneuvers validation and, and yeah. Yeah. Much less stress, more focused on um, flying the airplane, knowing what you need to know. And I think the training has streamlined. And now with AQP, they can only ask the questions that are pertinent to whatever aircraft you're on and that the FA has approved upon this training cycle. So like you said, Ty, the, the training today is a lot more uh, streamlined. It's a little bit easier. It's there's less variety. There's less uh, rogue DEs or APDs or you know uh, this is uh, designated examiners for those of uh, the listeners that don't quite get all the millions of acronyms that are in this industry. <laughs> so yeah, um, we throw a lot around, don't we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's actually a there's a, a guy I follow on the social media uh, that has a puppet and. You guys probably have seen this guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he, he did a song, yeah. and it's all acronyms, and, and it's great. <laughs> Maybe if I find it, I'll put it yeah. in the show notes. But So here you were. You guys were you, – you met. You're training together. You're studying together, and you know, you're both on the jet stream. Did you ever get to fly together? We did. We did. We flew together a lot. Yeah. I've never added up the hours, but – you know, and, and back then, of course, it was, um, you know, scheduling wasn't all computerized like they are now because now now it's like a game of Tetris. They just see, they just fill holes on their computer screen. Back then, if something came open, you could call them and say, hey, man, put me on this trip, will you? Yeah. So I, I think we did that with each other. Yeah. You know, hey, I got a day off. I see this is open. Can I have it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys got along. In the cockpit, did you have this kind of uh, mentality where, okay, when we're at work, we're flying uh, and we're going to leave all the personal out of it? Or was it more that the relationship was so good that, you know, you could look over at each other and say, uh, no, uh, that's not, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> any any yeah, challenges it, there? It, it sounds corny, but we really get along really well. Like, <laughs> yeah, so we didn't we didn't have issues. We rarely have issues anyway, like yeah. over the last 20 something years. That's crazy. That we've right? been together, <laughs> except if he's driving and I'm in the, in the other seat. Oh, we don't, <laughs> we, car, don't we don't, we don't talk about, we don't talk about driving in couples. Yeah, driving a car. Driving <laughs> I recently saw a, uh, 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 I don't know if it was like a, a video or a joke or an audio, but I remember it. And it was this past few few weeks, and there this couple they're in the kitchen, and the husband is like, "No, no, you're you're burning the onions. No, you got to spin them faster. No, you got to add a little bit more water. Put put more butter on there. You didn't put enough salt." And the wife goes, "What is wrong with you?" And he goes, "Well, I just wanted you to feel what it's like when we're driving together." <laughs> <laughs> See, she she'd be on the complaining side both ways because I do all the cooking. He did, yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, he so could yell great. at me about how I clean up. That's, I never yeah. do that. To you. <laughs> um, you know what? It's it's funny that um, it it brings up um, 
the question you asked made me think our chief pilot would tell the same stupid joke every time we'd see him we'd walk through the crew room we loved our chief pilot yeah and he'd, <laughs> every time he'd see us both he'd go hey when you guys are flying together because yeah, I was the captain and she was the first officer. Uh-huh. You go, you're the captain, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, who's really in charge? <laughs> every, every day but we saw him in the office. Every day. You know, it wasn't like every now and well, again. Did you guys go through that Part 61 training with the King schools with John and Martha yes. King? Okay. So did you ever yeah. watch... They did a, a series, and this is back, you know, VHS tapes. You could buy the VHS tapes and you'd throw them in your VCR. And I still have them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you really? <laughs> I had yeah. them for the longest time. I don't know where they are. But um, yeah, so, and they did one on the Citation Jet. And, uh, and John King was like, you know, and when we're in the Citation Jet, you know, the rules are very, you know, clearly defined. And, and I don't call Martha, honey. I call her Captain. And I say, well, Captain. <laughs> so just, I'll never forget that. So when you said that, I was like, oh boy, yeah, I can see where uh, Chief Pilot could, you know, crack that joke every day. But um. Um, I did call Jerry Honey in the cockpit. And the reason I remember this is because we were cruising along one time in the Embraer. We'd, we'd both moved over to the Embraer. And um, the Embraer 145, the, the RJ. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking. And all of a sudden, I couldn't hear her. And I said, honey, I can't hear you. (laughs) Honey, speak up, honey. In my mind, I remember saying honey about 50 times. (laughs) I probably said it once. But um, then I realized my mic was stuck. (laughs) And I was transmitting (laughs) over center frequency. (laughs) Honey, can I get a better altitude? I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. (laughs) (laughs) So so once I figured it out and I... um, I, I caught myself from letting an expletive go and un, unstuck my mic. Somebody gets on, another airline pilot gets on the frequency and he gets a big, deep voice. He goes, hey, make sure you tell honey we said hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. I forgot about that. Yeah, remember? <laughs> so you guys flew together, uh, two two type ratings there at Transstates, and then... How did that progression work into you guys ended up getting married, pulling the trigger, going for it, and then the children started to be in play here? And, you know, Jerry, what happened there? Did you decide, well, it's family, it's time to raise a family, and you kind of put aviation aside, or did you work both for a while? How did that progression work? I, so when we started, um, having kids with, with, I was pregnant with our first and I was still flying. I flew until I was about seven, seven and a half months pregnant. Um, and then we're looking at everything. We were looking at what it would cost to have a nanny. Um, what, you know, if there was possibly anybody we had in the family that could help, but no one at the time could you know, full time come help us because we would both be gone four days a week flying for a regional airline at the time and post 9-11 and the industry wasn't good. So we had no family. Nanny would take about my whole schedule, my whole pay at the time. Mm-hmm. And we just decided we didn't want to 
go that way. And so at about seven and a half, eight months pregnant, I went on leave. And um, I didn't quit until after our first, um, that, that daughter was born. Mm-hmm. But a few months later, I was still on leave and my manager called, my flight manager called and said, um, are you coming back to work? <laughs> yeah. And so we had to make the decision then, yeah, you know, yes, no. So I decided to stay home and I, I just at the time didn't want, um, without having family, I didn't want to be gone four days a week right. um, with someone yeah. watching the baby that I didn't know. And, and our schedules were full back then too, you know, it like now working for a major airline, you know, we both have 17, 18 days off a month. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you'd be lucky to have 12. Yeah. So, I mean, you're gone. Most, most of your life is gone. Right. Yeah. You're, you're gone yeah, more so, than your home for sure. Yeah. And I think so most was, people that are not in aviation don't really understand that. They look at you and go, well, you get paid really well, right? Aren't you home a bunch of days a week? I'm like, yeah, but those aren't, you know, I'm not home evenings and mornings. I'm gone, like gone for four yeah. or five, six days, depending on your schedule. And, and then when you get home, you're exhausted because you've been, you know, in multiple time zones, even at a regional. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough decision to make. And, you know, that's something I think most aviators, especially, you know, men, uh, it's a traditionally a male dominated industry and you get a lot of attitudes from men like, well, okay, they're going to have a baby and they're going to go, but that's a tough decision. And I, I can't yeah. imagine how difficult that is because every aviator knows, you know, there's a passion there for flying. There's a, you got to love it because otherwise, why would you put yourself through all that turmoil and all that yeah. time away? And, and so you love it and you have to make that decision to stay home. How, I mean, you, you made the decision, you made a great decision to raise a family and how was that difficult at times throughout afterwards? Or was it always like, nope, I made the right decision and I'd do it again a hundred times. No, it it was. And even now looking back, I, you know, I'm flying with people that started when I started and they're captains and, you know, I do go through like, uh, I, I could be at that place in the industry. Um, and I think when I did quit, it was shortly after 9-11. Mm. And so I think if the industry hadn't been in such a bad place. Maybe I would have stayed working as well um, because work at that time was not as fun as it always sometimes is. Yeah. Or it has been at other points in and, the and industry. Not as, our careers weren't very promising then either. You know, that was definitely went into the decision. We looked at it and said, we're going nowhere for who knows how long. Nobody's hiring. Yeah. So that, that played a big role. Really, you know, looking back, I don't, I don't regret it. I love, I, I loved staying home. You know, I, I still, you know, when I go to work now, I'm kind of sad that I'm not there to make breakfast for the kids. You know, I did all the cute lunches and, um, became the PTO president at their, my kid's school and did all the, you know, crazy mom stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad I got to do that. Had I been able to get in a better job position, I think it would have, I could have done both. 
mm-hmm. and been happy, but it's just not where, yeah. where the industry was at the time. Yeah. And you have to kind of judge, I think, the sacrifices to do that. And, and like you said, there are many factors at play and you know, the industry was trying to recuperate and turned into, you know, what no one really ever imagined being in that lost decade, that 10 year progression yeah. that after nine yeah. eleven that happened, that there just was so much stagnation that nobody was going anywhere and people were on forever reserve and forever FO and there just wasn't that progression that, that moved forward. So you know, the timing really did play a big role in, in the decision. And so yeah. you were out for how many years? 13. So 13 years. So 13 out of 120, out of the 121 yeah. industry. And your, your, your kids grew. And as soon as they were starting to get into high school and junior high, you started to see an opportunity. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier. You kind of, you felt a calling right that's right <laughs> and you said well the aviation industry is picking up it's time to get back into it and that's when we met at a that's very right. very exciting time um when we first flew together you were able to gain a position at what we here at squawk Ident called sandpiper airways and how did that progression work now here we are well, what year was that uh, 2017. 2017. So did you just start applying? Did you kind of get back into GA and, and build some time to get warmed up? Or how did that progression work? Yeah. yeah. So during, while I was staying home, um, I did start flying uh, general aviation. I flew for the Civil Air Patrol. Um, Tyler recommended it after he had been there. And so my, where we lived in Georgia, it has a fantastic um, unit, Civil Air Patrol unit there. It's a big group, so there was a lot of flying. Um, so I started flying for them, flight instructing and doing search and rescue missions um, for the Civil Air Patrol. And it was great. I was back. They, they had a weekly meeting. I got to hang out with a group of aviators again once a week. and. Um, do some flying. So I did that for the last few years prior to trying to get at a regional. So I could do it on my own time. It was all volunteer flying. It's not paid, but um, a great organization. And I know you've interviewed someone prior that did Civil Air Patrol flying. Yes. For kids and um, adults and working with the kids and there were several homeschool kids in the in our community that I would teach to fly during the day while my kids were at school. Oh, that's so cool. So, um, yeah. I would do that, and I would, um, like I said, do search and rescue or um, aerial photography mm-hmm. uh, for the government. Yeah, and Tyler, so, during this time, you know, you were you were in it. Were you? What was your progression from Transstates? What did you do after that? Uh, from trans states, I went and got a job with a now defunct airline who was bought by my current airline. That's how I ended up where I am now. Mm. Um, and, uh, so I, I've been a first officer for 10 years at this point, I guess. And, uh, which, which was 
kind of interesting, you know, because I'd been a captain most of my time at Trans States. I I was 14 years at Trans States, mm. and I moved into the seat um, of a 717, which I flew for four years before I transitioned over. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was a good it was a good time. It was a good learning experience. Another type rating, um, and uh, being in an airline that is. Uh, that's that's been bought by another airline and you know you've got a job to go to mm -hmm. um it, it was an interesting experience because as they're shrinking us we didn't have a lot of flying and uh so i stayed on reserve the entire time i i didn't work a lot i kind of stayed home trained for a marathon <laughs> yeah <laughs> got a lot of projects done. built a tree house built a tree yeah. house yeah <laughs> yeah and that's a wonderful experience too because here you are You've got a new family and, and, you know, your kids are growing and they're in school and, and you're able to be home more, even though, you know, reserve flying has its set of challenges. Were you, you know, where were you based at that first? Uh, Atlanta. You're in Atlanta. So you were commuting? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, initially we were commuting or, or I was commuting and um, we had decided uh, the place we lived in, we lived in the St. Louis area but we didn't love the school system that we were in and we had planned on moving anyway mm. and uh, even though um even though my airline was already slated for for closure we decided to move to the atlanta area um just so i wouldn't have to commute to reserve yeah and commuting to reserve is tough man and and especially when you've got i think we had 11 days off on reserve there Ooh. So I, I went from 11 days off to 20 days off a month, basically, because I'm on call, but they wouldn't call me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you're on reserve and at home at a, at a carrier and kind of low on the totem pole, I mean, that's a completely different way of life. It's a completely different job. And, it is. You know, to take advantage of that, you know, you're very fortunate to take advantage of that, be home, be home with the kids, be home with Jerry. And, and yeah, amazing. Amazing that you got to do yeah. that. It was great. Yeah, we did was. all kinds of stuff. I, mm -hmm. I built a hoverboard with my leaf blower for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> did all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. It was so, it was nice. And that and that airline uh, you mentioned was was bought out by, you know, and we're going to call it domestic air uh just obviously because you know you don't represent your airline as I don't represent mine so to protect right. ourselves here at Squawk Ident we kind of changed the names of our current carriers so that they can't go well you know you don't have authority to 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 talk you know on on a format like a podcast so domestic air currently flying you know, nationwide um big company and how did that transition go for you Ty from uh, getting bought out, having you, you mentioned there was a little bit of uh, shrink and reduction of flying, you know, you're on reserve a long time, the, the airline obviously was struggling a little bit, and then it got bought out by, by this domestic air. Um, how did that transition go? Was there animosity? Was there issues with pilot groups and work groups and unions? And, and that was that transition relatively smoothless? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, there's always going to be a bit of animosity. I think that you've got two groups and I mean, we're pilots. We all think that we're the best thing in the world. That's just how it works. Right. So, <laughs> so each group thought they were, uh, 
deserved more than they were getting, I think. And, you know, it's like every other um, merger, every successful merger I've, I've heard said, if, if everybody walks away a little disappointed, it was successful. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how it went. Uh, nobody felt like they got a better deal than the other guy. And uh, um, it, I, I do feel like it was a great deal for me because it happened as soon as I got hired there. So my entire tenure at that airline was basically just sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm. And, uh, it, it was a better deal. It was, it's a bigger airline. The pay is better. The, um, the schedules are better and, uh, in, in a much better finance financial position than the airline that hired me. So right now going through kind of the crisis that we're dealing with, I don't feel threatened. I feel like I'll have a job in six months. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, you know, the other airline, I, I probably wouldn't feel so secure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you know? a tough time. Uh, I mean, you guys both lived through it with the 9 11 uh, event yeah. and how that crippled the airline for so long. So it's not your first rodeo out here. Um, and well, maybe we'll get into a little bit of that a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit about that transition to the 737 for you. Was that um, a relatively seamless training transition? Uh, now working for a very large airline that has primarily 7.3s, at least they, they traditionally do and had. Um, was that training cycle a little bit better for you? It, it was. Um... They, you know, they had already sort of transitioned over to the whole AQP philosophy. Um, it, it was all training. There was, there was quite a bit of self-study and, you know, it's always like drinking out of the fire hose, but, uh, the, the training was very positive. Everybody was very helpful. Um, and, and the 737, it's a slippery airplane. It doesn't like to slow down. But other than that, it, it's a very basic, easy airplane to fly, I think. Um, the the 7-1, I think, was a little more difficult to fly, but you could you could get it to slow down a lot easier. So with the, with the 7-3, you just have to back up everything you're doing by about 10 miles. And as uh, long as you can wrap your head around that, you're good. Yeah. And uh, the max issue which now has been dwarfed, obviously, um, <laughs> by everything else that's going on. No one's talking about the MAX, right? Um, but it, was that, that's a pretty major event for your airline. Did you see an initial reduction of flying, and did that affect the pilot group at all when that started to roll yeah. out? Yeah, that's, um, it, it did. It, it affected our airline quite a bit because all of our growth projection was predicated on the max and they just they yanked the rug out from under us so they continued to hire which has been great for us because they hired jerry (laughs) and uh if they had cut off hiring we would have been at normal staffing levels now now we're overstaffed Mm -hmm. um and the company knows that and and so therefore our line values have all gone down significantly that uh i think that a lot a lot of the pilots i fly with 
aren't super happy about that. Um, I'm not super happy about it, but uh, we're still, even with this crisis going on, we're still anticipating a return of the max, possibly some growth in the future. And, and that'll keep, I hopeful, hopefully that'll keep everybody on property. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jerry, we, uh, we met, uh, was it, you said 2017? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Summer of 2017. Yeah. So we, uh, you were a new hire at uh, Sandpiper Regional. And uh, so you got back into the game. You were able to apply and get a job there. And we flew together soon after you went through your training. Is that correct? It was. It was only, I was looking back, you know, you were maybe, it was maybe my third or fourth trip Mm. after Iowa. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I remember, uh, I remember that trip vividly because I was listening to your story as we often do. When you first meet someone, you're going to fly together with them. You're in a relatively intimate space in the phone booth, as I call it, um, you know, flying an airplane around and, and doing, you know, at the regional, at least, you know, three, four, five legs a day sometimes. And I got to hear your story and I just thought, wow, you know, this, this lady's a rock star, you know? Uh, raising a family, flying, raising a family, and then coming back to it. And just the fact that you were coming back to it um, and hit it with such velocity, you know, got right into it. And we ended up running together. What was it? We were in Springfield, I think, Missouri. Yeah, uh, pain. That was, well, that was no, no, right. the second you're time. Right. Springfield. Yeah. Yeah. Springfield. Yep. And we got to, uh, to hear each other's stories, how, hear about each other's families. Um, and it was just such a positive, uh, you know, d- delight to, to fly with you. And you weren't, uh, an FO for very long, were you? Yeah, it was just about six months. Yeah. So, so your previous so yeah, experience that... made a big difference in your progression. Yes. Yeah. Just shortly after I got hired, um, Sam Piper started hiring captains directly you know direct entry captains mm-hmm. so if you had the previous 121 time and i was a captain uh, back at trans states you could um there weren't many people that were already there that were doing it they were getting directly hired but since i was there um i moved right up to upgrade about six months after i started yep yep and then but right before you did that you had i think one of your final flights as an fo we ended up in champagne as you mentioned uh, together and all four of us, right? All four members uh, of the crew, we all went for a run together. Your FO and me and my captain, yeah, we all went running around the campus. Yeah, and that was a <laughs> that was a pretty cool thing to do because that's not the usual. You know, you don't usually get to meet up with multiple crews and and go do something you all enjoy. We all enjoyed running. We were all runners, so yeah. You know, look at those pilots running around the campus. It's great. <laughs> they only knew we were pilots because we were all wearing our pilot hat, right? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> we had our, that was on our back of our t-shirts. I'm a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> they could usually pick us out in the bar or the restaurant anyway. We're, oh, we're yeah. the ones with the white sneakers and the... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to buy some New Balance <laughs> stocks. From the 80s. <laughs> no, I know. I, you know, call, call home to Tyler and tell him how much I'm loving being back, you know, um, getting to hang out with a cool captain, you know, the laid back, having fun, going running. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. You made it. You made it a good trip. <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad. You know, it was it was great for me too. And so you you upgraded right after that. Um, so there you were, captain on the 145 again. Um, how was that experience? Was that a uh, pretty seamless? It was easy. The whole the whole coming back to the 121 world was easier than I had anticipated. It was kind of scary coming back after 13 years and am I going to, you know, be good enough and be able to do this? And I think coming back to the Ember 145 helped me mm. since I had been a captain on it before. Right. And that's what I flew for most of my career um, prior because the flying the airplane came back pretty easily and it was and it was just so much fun. Like I was so excited to be back. So um, the whole ground school and, you know, just getting through training is easier than I thought upgrading. Um, the I think my biggest thing with upgrading was here I am a captain at this airline and I've only been here six months. So it's a little bit scary, you know, what just making sure I'm going to be able to do a good job. Yeah. And, um, but it, it's like, it's not the flying that's scary, right? It's the details of the job. Yeah. Like, yeah, just you know, all the, where the does procedural, this go? Yeah. yeah. How do they do it here? You know, you know, yeah. Exactly. yeah. So, do we say positive rate or positive climb? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And we all know so, the, the rule of primacy, you know, how many times do you call for a checklist? Oh, I know that was the other airplane. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. And as, as we get uh, older and more experienced in the industry and have more time under our belts, then, you know, you, you have these, when you're tired, this calling for a wrong checklist or the wrong verbiage and, and you're kind of bending that SOP because you're going back to that rule of primacy. Um, maybe that previous aircraft that you flew or the first aircraft you flew or that legacy. I mean, not now, but a couple of years ago, they were changing our checklist like every few months. So they wanted to have all the fleet types uh, have very similar verbiage in all of their checklists and procedures. So they were changing like every few months, you'd get a new checklist. And so you'd have to, you know, get all this verbiage down. And that was very, very intimidating. Um, so between that and learning a new uh, procedure, you know, flight manual that talks about how the company does this and the regulations on visibility and, and all this stuff and limitations with the company imposed limitations on, on a fleet or an airplane. And it's pretty intimidating. And to be there only six months, I can totally understand how that could be a little bit of a challenge. But you you got through it, you know, you you succumbed into getting into that position of responsibility and you looked very happy from all your uh, posts on social media and <laughs> flying with really good crew members. And I always, uh, enjoy seeing, uh, you know, photos of the crew together. Hey, we're on this overnight, check it out, you know? And, um, yeah. so you had a good time. Yeah. And the kids, yeah. did they, did they transition with having mom gone a little bit more often now? Uh, okay. Or did, were there any hurdles there? Yeah, they, they really have. And it's, I think it's been really, really good for them because you know, me being home all the time and I like, I'm very, or, you know, I like things the way I like them and I would do a lot of the stuff. And when I went away to work, um, Tyler was like, you know, they're doing their own laundry. They're making their own lunch. <laughs> they're Wonderful. riding the bus to school. 
I bought so, them each an alarm clock. Yes. You know, so, <laughs> you know, here's a, a thing that you might not know, <laughs> but a lot of pilots are kind of type A. <laughs> really? Hmm. I know that type A person. And Barry is a pilot. She's <laughs> oh the type I'm, A of type I'm A. I'm type A for both of us because he's type B. He's not a normal pilot. No. So, <laughs> yeah. So they grew up a lot when I went and took a lot more responsibility and mm -hmm. it's been, it's been great. It, yeah. It's been really good for them. So, yeah. So now you got the yeah. four young adults running around the house and anybody in college yet? Not yet. Not yet. Almost. Yeah. 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 And or any of them interested yeah. in aviation more importantly? Nobody is interested in aviation. No. <laughs> Not well, isn't that crazy? Not, yeah. No. I'm the same here. We don't My daughter's like, nope. I mean, Not at all. Yeah. And we want them to do their own thing, you know? They, they should find their own passion, and they are. Mm -hmm. Every one of them is completely different. They have their own thing, and mm -hmm. they're happy with it. So here you are. You're back in the saddle, flying on a regular basis, a captain at what we call Sandpiper Regional, and enjoying your, enjoying your time there, enjoying the flying. And you guys did a little move, didn't you? Uh, you moved back kind of where it all began? Yeah, we, so living in Atlanta, we, we wanted to live somewhere where we could both work and not commute, especially with both of us in the industry. Mm -hmm. So we looked around and Chicago area, the Chicago area seemed like the best place, no matter where I ended up for the most part. Yeah. And this was even prior to you getting hired by Sandpiper Air. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Just, just We, we kind of moved to Chicago on spec because, um, what do we call it? Domestic yeah. Air. So Domestic Air has a base in Chicago, mm. as does every other major airline but one right and we decided let's move to chicago because we don't know where jerry's going to end up in her, in her career right yeah and several regionals have a base there so it seemed like the best um opportunity mm -hmm. to hopefully both be based in the and, same city and they have really good food in chicago oh yeah which is, is yeah probably the most important <laughs> Yeah, every every culture, every uh, nationality, it's all there. So Chicago yeah. was home, and you were able to progress, and you were both living pretty much in base. And how did that progression work, Jerry? You were there at the uh, Sandpiper Regional for how long? Uh, two, two and a half years. Two and a half years there, and applied went through the interview process at domestic air and how did that yeah. work? Got was hired. Was it a tough interview um, or, or? <laughs> the interview was wonderful. Like they made you feel the actual interview. They make you feel very comfortable. Um, so it was, it was a really nice interview with, Tyler, having had worked there and been on property there the last five years, I knew what a great company they were and um, how they treat their people. 
and the interview was not any different. It mm. was um, like you're just part of the family. So it was a, a very good interview, prepped a lot, you know, got studied a lot for it, tried to do what I could to be ready to interview. But it, it went very well. And um, I, I had to wait about, it was about two weeks until the decision board makes their decision mm. after all the people that interviewed that week interview. And the day, then you know what day they're going to be making that decision. So you're hoping for a phone call with the job offer. And so Tyler and I were both home and doing things around the house that day. And eventually he comes in the room um, and offers me a job. <laughs> I, I had worked it out with my chief pilot ahead of time. He actually approached me, our, our chief pilot in Chicago said, when Jerry gets the job, because I absolutely believe she will, do you want to be the one to hire her? And I said, of course, yeah, that, that would be awesome. And so we were both home that day. And I got to give her the job offer, which was yes. one of the coolest things it that was, ever happened. We were both, you know, he starts doing, you know, giving the job offers <laughs> and I start tearing up. He starts tearing up. It was, you know, more sentimental, you know, than when he proposed. We, you know, <laughs> we were both <laughs> crying and yeah. happy. And yeah. Well, so, talk about so full circle. You know, it began, yeah. you guys, uh, you know, became a couple of your first 121 operator. And here you are kind of at the tip of the pyramid, I dare say, you know, you're both at a carrier where I don't know about what your personal ideas are, but you easily could just call that your, you know, retirement carrier. Oh, yes. it's, a, it's, it's there. And so full, full circle, you get to hopefully fly together. Have you flown together? Not here. Not, not here. Not yet. Here. Not yet. First yeah, I, I haven't upgraded yet. Um, and and the Max, this new deal, um, that's kind of slowed down my upgrade. I probably could have held it by now. Um, but uh, I, I joked, I joked about a year ago, and I I told Jerry, I don't think I'm gonna upgrade because I'm really enjoying my schedule. She said, Oh no, you're gonna upgrade because. I'm going to fly with you again. Yeah. So. She's got to keep an eye on you. Make sure you're honest. <laughs> make sure you run that checklist appropriately, sir. <laughs> yeah. All over. And what yeah. was the toughest question, uh, Jerry, in that interview? Um, they asked me what the hardest part of training would be. And, and so I'm, the hardest part was, and what I thought it was going to be, it was I had only been typed on the Ember 145. Um, and so transitioning to getting typed on a, not only a much bigger airplane, but, you know, much different and um, just training on a different airplane, which I hadn't done yeah, except for one time in my career. So that was definitely the hardest part. I thought, well, that's how I answered it. I thought that would be the hardest part. And it was, but um, I had a really good study partner at home, and um, so that helped. Yeah. And training, training in general, they just backed you up all the way. Everything was positive. Yeah. Um, anytime you needed help, they, 
before you even knew you needed help, making sure, you know, you um, had what you needed and great group of, of classmates that stuck together and studied together. And so it, it ended up being a great experience. Yeah. And which system do you think was the most challenging on the 7-3? Hmm. Um, you know, it's the VNAV. Oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's the toughest that, system on that airplane. That is true. Because, and especially, I had never had uh, VNAV, vertical navigation, before in any aircraft I flew. And there's so many different ways you can use it. So I'm still getting used to that now, being on the line the last six months. Yeah. Yeah. And we mentioned earlier that uh, while you were at Sandpiper, you took the opportunity to become a, a LOSA pilot. Can you give us a little information? First, what does LOSA mean and what is involved in that? Yeah. So LOSA is a line observation safety audit. It's a, it's a part of the safety department, which every airline has. Safety is always our number one concern. So it's a, um, a group that has a, a pilot will go sit on the jump seat of a typical, any typical line flight and make sure, just, just observe. You're not there checking anybody. You're not um, in charge of anybody. You're just watching how they do conduct the flight, the flight crew, and um, anything that's inconsistent with our SOP, uh, you're logging that, or anything that's good, though, too. It's not bad things. Anything that um, could change policy, maybe, or procedures in the future. So you're just logging details about their flight, and um, the LOSA observer, and that's what I started at. Um, I wanted to get more involved with something at the airline. And at the time, the LOSA was hiring. So I was able to get on there. And so I would go on line flights and observe other crews and write a report afterwards about what, you know, they did, just what they did in general, good, bad, or other. And eventually, um, the analyst that analyzes all these reports that comes in, he went over to Legacy Airlines, and I was able to apply and get his position um, analyzing all those reports that the observers mm-hmm. turn in all throughout the month. And so look, reading all those reports and uh, getting the information into something um, that our manager of safety can read and have an idea, a big, a big idea of what our line pilots are doing. Yeah. So SOP, just for the listeners that may not understand, standard operating procedures. So every airline has a standard to the way they operate every particular type of aircraft on the fleet. And at Legacy, they had uh, two different types at the time. Actually, I think three with the introduction of the 175 Embraer. Um, And so since you were typed on the 145, you were doing LOSA reports for the 145. And as you mentioned, those safety audits are an integral part of making changes to the training through the AQP program. So if the analyst uh, conducts the reports, sends it to the director of flight, and they say, well, we've seen an increased uptick of uh, flap overspeed or, or incorrect um, you know, gear up calls or something. So whatever that particular analysis shows that is not being done either correctly or 
possibly being done correctly, but is causing another issue. So anytime that that data reveals that, then it's up to the director of safety to get together with director of training and adjust the training cycle in the simulator to correct this action or change the way they do things. So it's a pretty major event, major job and a major job position. And wow, that's a really impressive thing. How long did you do that for? Um, almost, almost the whole time I was there, um, started as an observer, um, sometime some, as an FO mm -hmm. and then, uh, continued to do it. So probably about two years, wow. a little, little over two years. Any challenges with that position? It was, it was time consuming. Um, we had to, when you're an observer, you go observe flights on your day off or after you conduct your own flying. Um, so I did have to put in some extra time. Mm -hmm. And as an analyst, um, taking the time to read all the reports and do a thorough briefing on them. Mm -hmm. um, so mostly time. It was, it was an interesting job because you're seeing, I think it makes better pilots if you're an observer, you, you get to watch crews and really just watch what they're doing. And, you know, you may not do something like they do or be like, oh, that's a, you know, um, a good way to do something that's outside of SOP, how people handle things. Yeah, particular uh, techniques that have been developed on the line, sure. Yeah. So it was, it was a, it's a good learning experience as a pilot yourself. And then as an analyst reading what everybody else is writing about. So it was great experience. Yeah. But um, yeah, definitely time, just the time with work, you know, not only already working and having the family at home, mm -hmm. but um, still a great, great experience and a good department to yeah. work in. And Ty, have you uh, participated in any kind of uh, extra organizations through either of the carriers that you've flown for? Yeah, I, I was a union rep for a little while. Um, I think I did it for about two years because I wanted to give back. And that, that was super time consuming. I was, um, I was an Alpha rep. I was a pilot to pilot rep. I, before everybody was had the internet mm -hmm. we uh we did the phone tree i organized a whole bunch of pilots to disseminate information i think it's probably um less time consuming now for a rep to do what i did but yeah and you were before the the age of social media pages and uh email yeah. blasts and and things like that so yeah exactly. it's, a lot of, it's a lot of work yeah um, and, and then, you know, and since then, I've just, I've just been a line pilot. I, uh, I enjoy my job. I love my job. I love my company, but I also enjoy my time, my free time. So yeah, it's one of the great things about this profession. Is yes, at the beginning of the journey, you will be on reserve, commuting, dealing with you know ten, nine, eleven days off at home, of which some of those days might be commuting, some of those days might be recovering. Um, yeah. and, and it's very tough, but as you progress in seniority, the, you know, the, if you can move to, to base and have that quality of life increase, and as the income increases, the quality of life increases and the schedules get better. And so 
after you pay your dues for the first couple of years in this profession, there are definitely benefits to flying the line and having that time at home. Um, yeah. And, and there's plenty of organizations to get involved with. Um, we mentioned earlier in our, in our pre-interview discussion, Jerry, that you were also involved with Women in Aviation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that organization? Yeah, so Women in Aviation, it's an international organization to help um, women. And, and not only, I mean, that's how it was founded, but it helps um, men as well nowadays. But um, just to help get more people involved and interested in aviation and they have scholarships to help people with flight training. Um, so it's a, it's a great organization to help, um, get more people interested in this career field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well, uh, for those interested, uh, to learn more about it. Uh, you can go to the website in the show notes, uh, for the women in aviation program. And now I wanted to just ask both of you kind of maybe back and forth a few questions that really highlight the journey so far. And, you know, we've talked about how juggling a family and juggling this career and progression in this career and trying to constantly be moving forward, it's very difficult. And there are many conflicting demands between personal and professional lives. And what do you think so far in your journey has been the biggest challenge to, to juggle all of it? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, probably scheduling. That's yeah. what I was thinking are schedules Just, because, you know, you bid, you bid line and uh, on seniority. Now, right now, Jerry's super junior. So we, we have to kind of almost figure out what she's going to get awarded because I, I can hold, I can hold a spectacular schedule right now. I could work uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday every week and she works weekends. So if I, if I bid this schedule that I can hold, we would never see each other. Mm. If I bid this schedule that she can hold, we'd both be gone when the kids are home. So It's kind of that trying to figure out, okay, how much overlap do we want? How, yeah, yeah, the logistics of it all going on, you know, yeah. So, scheduling demands when you're a a couple flying with a family definitely the biggest challenge, from what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I know a lot of people do bid opposite each other that have kids and they're able to, um, you know, do raise their kids and, and both work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they can, a lot of people do it that way. And we try to actually bid the same because we luckily now have family living with us um, that we've hired to take care of the kids while we're, while we're not yeah. home. So that works out for us really well. We can, we can work at the same time if we want to and all be home the other four or five days a week. Yeah. And we've, we've together. mentioned it before too. I mean, I think the secret and, and everyone I've interviewed in the past has kind of said the same thing. The secret is balance. You know, you have to have a balance with both your career, your personal life, your family, your spouse. And if you don't balance it all out, something's going to tip. 
And it sounds to me like the schedule is the biggest challenge for you since you're both flying. Um, and, and that, that's gotta be a challenge to, to keep that all in balance and into play. Yeah. And it is. And luckily, unlike, you know, back in the regional days when you're, I think it's getting better schedule flexibility, but when we were at trans States, the, it was not flexible. And now at domestic air, it's extremely flexible. So that, that helps us a lot. We can usually do what we need to do with our schedule to make that balance work. Yeah, Yeah, we do. There's a lot of trading and there's a lot of picking up or trading with the company, other pilots and, we, yeah, we can really re-engineer. So whatever you get awarded, as far as your schedule goes, it, it's not the final schedule. Yeah. You can keep adjusting it throughout and the trip month. Trip trade and whatnot, yeah. 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 So, you know, you've you both been in and out of the cockpit for you know, multiple decades now. What is the best way, in terms of giving advice to a newer aviator out there, to deal with conflicting personalities in the cockpit. It's a very common question that I hear a lot. And I just wanted to get your two cents on it. Personally, I feel if you have a, you know, a conflicting, somebody that's, uh, you know, has a conflicting personality, I, I, how to say this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I can mostly get along with anybody. So if, you know, I've flown with the captains before that our personalities definitely conflicted. Not very often, not very, I haven't flown luckily with very many of them. And mostly they've been like you and Ty and they're great. And, but, um, you know, don't get angry at the situation. Don't try to, um, stand up for yourself. If there's something they're doing that, you know, that could be a, an issue, a safety issue or, I mean, just, just the environment, stand up for yourself. And I find that often that will kind of bring them back down, you know, bring mm-hmm. them like, if you don't let, let them, yeah, don't, let them know. Don't feed the fire. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, yeah, like you said, stand up for yourself and say, that's not the right way to do it. I don't feel comfortable with this, you know, um, or a lot of times it's not in the flying. That is the issue. It's the you know, the personalities that they just don't mesh and, yeah. you know, not letting people get to you is really the best bet to rise above, to stay above all that. How about Tyler? What, yeah. about, what about you? Yeah. I, you know, I find, um, again, and it, it depends on, on your personality. Cause I, I'm the same way, Jerry. I, I think I get along with most people and, uh, I think that's essential. I, I think that, as an airline pilot, you're stuck in a tiny, tiny room with another person for hours at a time. And you kind of have to find that common ground. Uh, I find it easier as a first officer than I did as a captain. Really? When I was captain, I I felt like um, nine out of 10 times, everything was fine. And then you'd get the one first officer that thought he wanted to be a captain. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Challenging you a lot. Yeah. And so that was harder for me. Um, I, I, I'm not the captain now. I would do things different than that guy would do or that, that girl would do. Um, 
but it's not really a big deal because it works out both ways. So there's, Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think that's what it is. I think you, you just don't have to be in charge all the time, maybe. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you long career, you've, I'm sure, had more than a few emergency situations. Can each of you describe probably what comes to, to mind as the biggest emergency you've ever had? Yeah, I, I've only had one true emergency. Um, where I had to declare an emergency. Um, and that was a flat failure on the Ember 145 at Sandpiper. And I was a brand new captain after my six month upgrade and flying out of uh, LaGuardia. And it was snowy and 200 and a half. And uh, I mean, the ceiling was 200 and the visibility is a half mile in snow. And so the flaps. Um, for those that don't know, you need them to help you slow down on on landing. Um, and they weren't going to come back down. We got an indication that they were up, but they had they were failed and they weren't going to come back down. So we ran our checklist. We are discussing discussing our options um, with the bad weather on the East Coast. We were supposed to be heading to Nashville. And so we decided to divert to an air, airport that had did not have the weather, had very long runways and uh, um, equipment there that could help us if we needed to. So um, it was a so that was an interesting flight. It was we had to make those decisions. And I, you know, we made a good decision to divert to an airport that didn't have, you know, that, that was the best stuff, best um Best option for you. Yeah. What airport did you divert to? Uh, Columbus. Okay. Uh, Columbus, Ohio. CMH. Uh, it was one of our main maintenance bases. So, and it had long runways and mm-hmm. the uh, crash and fire rescue. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very yeah. harrowing, especially as a new captain. I mean, so you're dealing with this yeah. emergency and you're like, oh, come on. Really? Today? It's going to happen today? <laughs> And the best part, you know, I'm about a 30-hour captain there, and my first officer had about the same amount of time at all in the airplane. Yeah. So we were, he was new in the right seat and, and new to the airline, and I was new in the left seat. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so, that could be I definitely. That was a common <laughs> thing. I think I had... Uh, two instances of flap fail on the Embraer 145. I don't know, because they had that oh, well. asymmetrical. Yeah, once once as an FO going into snowy, where was it? Uh, I think it was La Crosse, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we ended up continuing and, you know, did all the calculations. The captain says, well, you know, we, we've got the landing distance. It's not snowing. It was snowing, but it was not snowing at the time. They just plowed the airport runway. So all the numbers, you know, work so we continued and sure enough uh maintenance had us do a reset electrical reset procedure over the phone which was approved at the time and here comes the flaps to come back up and go figure yeah so yeah common common issue on the Embraer 145 good uh good section of the uh, qrh to study uh, (laughs) prior to getting out on the line is the flap fail procedure um how about ty how about you any uh, major events 
Oh man, I you know I I don't know if I'm lucky or unlucky. Um, when I uh, when I went to interview at the airline that brought me to my current airline, domestic airlines, um, I sat down with the chief pilot and he he said, "Have you ever had smoke in the cockpit?" I said, "Yeah, twice." And he goes, uh, "Have you ever lost a, an engine on a jet plane?" I said, "Yes." Lost my engine one time on the Embraer, and he goes, "How about hydraulic failure?" Yeah, I had a full hydraulic <laughs> failure on the Embraer. Oh my god! <laughs> and uh, he just kept asking me questions. He finally stopped. He goes, "All right, don't bring any of that nonsense over here." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. Um, but you know, that's why we have checklists, and that's why we have procedures. It, none of it ever scared me or really got my blood going you know even when uh and i lost an engine on the 7-1 also but um so i did end up bringing some of it over but when that when i lost an engine on the Embraer, we were climbing out we're through about uh 30,000 feet and we heard a an enormous bang um no real indication no real en- engine in- indications. And um, I think on that airplane, there there's an ITT gauge. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having to think back 10 years now. The ITT, I think, was running just, just barely hotter on the number one engine. And everything else was kind of normal, but, but the airplane didn't seem to want to keep climbing. And uh, so we figured something was wrong. Um, we had the flight attendant check in the cargo compartment um, for maybe something blew out or maybe something exploded. Uh, so we we were only kind of half thinking that it was an engine. And uh, one of the passengers had reported that he saw a flash out the the left side of the airplane. Mm. And on further investigation, there there were big holes on the inside of the cowling. So we knew that something happened to that engine. We ended up shutting it down, turning it around, coming back to St. Louis. And uh, when I, I got out of the airplane to see what the actual damage was, the, um, the spinner on the engine, the bullet on the, on the engine had separated. Oh. And it came out, yeah, you know, like 30,000 feet, full power. We we're still climbing. Um, shrapnel all down the side of the airplane and uh we figured the big boom was probably a compressor stall from the engine just blowing it forward yeah and uh i mean not it wasn't it ended up being kind of uneventful because we shut it down and we just flew it like you do the sim and came back it took a little extra power on final and Mm -hmm. uh landed fine no big deal yeah and, you know, as an aviator going through all the training that we do through every cycle that we have, I mean, how many cycles have you gone through over the past couple of decades? And you're constantly different airplane, maybe, but you're training for the yeah. same thing over and over yeah. again. All the things, all those emergency scenarios in the simulator, which, I mean, these multi-million dollar simulators do an excellent job at you know, recreating all the sensations that you're going to feel in the actual airplane if it happened in real life. And so you actually had it happen uh, at altitude. And was it just like in the sim? At that 
point um, at that time in history, it, it kind of wasn't because the only engine failures that we practiced were on takeoff and maybe, you know, pattern altitude, mm. 3,000 feet or something. And um, so it, it was very different. We'd, we'd never practiced uh, a high altitude engine failure. But mm. um, there was plenty of time to analyze the situation. Nothing was on fire, thank the gods. And uh, we just we just kind of ran the checklist and dealt with it. It did, it, it flew very similar to the way the simulator flies on one engine. Mm -hmm. um, it was easier than flying the simulator on one engine, significantly easier because it was VMC. You could see the runway, we just shot a nice, easy visual approach. Yeah. So a single engine approach to land as you do in the sim on an engine failure or V1 cut or whatever you do. Um, in the sim, it's very sensitive and it's kind of difficult. It's always IMC down to minimums. Um, yeah. But here you are in real life doing it and not as not as touchy, maybe? Yeah, not not nearly as... Um, well, like, you know, you hit on it. They, It's almost always weather down to minimums. You're in the clouds. You're, you're having the... Um, I mean, we have five times as many verbalizations on an instrument approach than we do on a visual approach. Mm -hmm. So it was certainly less busy. And, uh, and also there's more time to, to kind of wrap your head around a single engine approach. You talk about it, uh, the flight deck, we, we talk back and forth. Okay, remember this, it, you need a little more power on final. We can only land flaps, uh, what was it in that airplane? Nine, I think, mm. with a single engine or 22. 22? Yeah, Embraer, uh, 22, yeah. Flaps 22. Yeah, 22. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it was, I think it was a lot easier than the sim um, just because the workload was spread out over a, a long period of time. Right. And you weren't having a, oh my God, I just lost an engine. Turn around, land the airplane. Oh, the clouds are all the way down to the ground. Oh, yeah, and, go uh, around, single engine. Oh, yeah, come back around. <laughs> now VR only. Okay, yeah. autopilot off. Yep. The work was certainly <laughs> less in it, but it, it flew very similar to a the sim. I, I mean, the you did you said earlier also that simulators are spectacular. The ones that we train in are almost identical to the airplane. Sometimes you have to kind of do a reality check and say, oh, wait a minute, this is a video game. It's not the airplane. <laughs> Well, yeah, and sometimes when you're sitting in an airplane and it's dark outside, God, this feels just like the sim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely interchangeable, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, that's what uh, that's what those simulator check airmen and simulator instructors always tell you before you go in there. All right, treat it like the real airplane. It's not, you know, because yeah. they want you to not to go. Well, it's just a simulator. Yeah, you know, that's that's not true though, because they won't let me take my freaking coffee into that simulator, right? <laughs> well, you know, not even a sippy cup. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so far, let's just talk about domestic air. What's your favorite layover? I I just did it actually. Uh, we do a a Punicon Dominican Republic mm. layover mm -hmm. where we get about twenty four hours in an all inclusive resort on the beach. That's yeah. just uh, it, it's like I can't believe they're paying me to do this. Yep. Yeah, Jerry, how about you? Yeah. So far, so I haven't done, you know, had the opportunity to do um, all of our overnights, but I really like San Juan. 
Yeah. And I've heard some interviews of you going to, you know, when you were down in San Juan, but mm-hmm. yeah, San Juan. That's a close um, second for me, by the way. Yeah, we stay <laughs> stay somewhere with a nice resort and, you know. Oh, you do? You stay you in a nice place? Is, yeah, so I have done that one. Nice. Yeah, and actually on New Year's Eve, I had a San Juan overnight and Tyler was off, so he came with me. Mm-hmm. on my overnight on new year's eve and i was flying with the captain that he had already flown with and is a great guy yeah, probably my favorite captain too so it was, it so was we an had awesome a good time trip. yeah you know you get probably you know some people are fortunate and get more but i i think you get about half a dozen really good trips really good layovers in a year you know and you end up just everything comes together good crew you know, good flight attendants, good layover, good food, good fun, safe overnights with a, a nice warm bed and a quiet hotel room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no little league uh, events happening, you know, to, to uh, keep you up all night. But, you know, sometimes these, these events happen and the fact that you guys get to share them together, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And Tyler, we don't know what's going to happen, of course, with next month, you know, with the current situation. But he has the same uh, Punta Cana overnight next month, and he said he'll trade with me. Yeah, there you trade. go. I will. What a good that's, husband is that's that? Right. I'm the best husband ever. He'll go on reserve so <laughs> I can have his. Now, he said that once all this uh, coronavirus stuff started happening. but Yeah, yeah. Good timing. Good timing, Ty. I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah. So that part's nice, too, that we can do. We can trade with each other like that if we. Yeah need want to yeah yeah the pilot to pilot trade is is always work works out pretty good especially when you're together that's great so let's say you can go back in time just for a moment and whisper in your own ear as you're starting this journey what would you tell yourself Hmm. i don't know and i i think i would say when you go to upgrade at your first airline there's going to be this really cute chick in (laughs) class (laughs) Don't let her go. <laughs> well, you didn't. I know. So, it, so, I mean, am I a time traveler or not? <laughs> it already happened. Ah, right? Uh, gosh. I, I would have pursued domestic airlines um, a lot harder mm. earlier on in my career. Because this is, we work at a, at a fantastic place. I mean, I, and uh, you don't know until you get your feet on the ground. And I think that's a, a lot of the reason why Jerry came over here also yeah. is, uh, you know, just, I mean, I, I love going to work. I, it hadn't always been that way. Um, other places I've worked, it's a good job. It's a great job. If you got to work, this is the kind of job to have, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but working here is, uh, I wouldn't say I'd rather go to work than stay home, but I, I don't hate going to work. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good deal. And when they ask me to stay an extra day, I don't argue. I'm not upset about it. I say, okay, you know, it's just part of the job. Yeah. 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 And I don't know. I've, I'm not, um, personally, I, I like the way my whole career has gone. It was being a passion from a young kid 
having my parents, you know, giving me the opportunity to, to do it. And then starting out so young at a regional and I do wish, you know, if I would have gotten, been able to get on at a major, um, before we started a family that might've made a difference in the rest of my career. But, but then I also love that I was home all that time with the kids and the general aviation that I flew during that time and the people I worked with and met and everywhere I've worked, it's been a blast and a lot of fun and great friendships and fun times. I, I guess for anyone that's like looking back for myself, I, I think I wouldn't really change anything, but for maybe young people getting into it, like don't think there's anything you can't do. I find especially um, as a female in the industry, a lot of people look up in the cockpit and still have a surprised look on their face and say, Oh, I didn't know women could fly. And, or something Jesus. to that effect. And, and people still say that. 2020. <laughs> and I would want people to know, like, little, you know, young girls or, you know, that anybody can 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 do it. And I never had that doubt. And I don't, that never even crossed my mind as a kid. Like, I, I liked flying for some reason. And I was able to go do it. And I had, um, you know, luckily, with, with support from my family. But, um yeah, that anybody can do it. And there's a lot of opportunities um, to get into it as a young person. Yeah. So. Which leads me to my next question. So it's a trying time right now in the industry. And that goes without saying. And, but we're going to bounce back. And we've bounced back from terrible events before. And I don't think this is going to last as long as, say, the 9-11 disaster. Uh, because this is a little different. This is a completely different scenario. And this quarantine and this virus, and then once we get a um, some kind of shot to a vaccination to uh, help minimize the effects and everything, things are going to bounce back. Because here we were on a very big uptick. I mean, it was astronomical how fast the industry was growing, how fast technology and uh, population, and we've we really become a very small planet. But a young aviator in today's marketplace is gonna really be panicking right now. And you know, my last, the title of my last show was "Don't Panic," okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easy to say, but I think we all kind of need to hear example after example after example of why we shouldn't panic. Now, you guys, both of you have lived through. 9-11 scheduling issues. And here we are uh, happening with the, the MAX issue that directly affected in domestic air and its operation. And now this, if I'm a young aviator, say a CFI, building my time, my apps are out, maybe I have a job interview coming up, maybe, you know, maybe I'm at a regional and I had a, a flow through number coming up soon. And now I'm freaking out because uh, you know, there's giant unknown and we hate the unknown, especially as aviators. We hate the unknown. We want to have that checklist for what to do next. What advice would each of you give a young aviator in today's marketplace about how to handle our current situation? Yeah, I'd say just keep 
keep at it. It's going, this will pass. We've gone through things before and that's how the aviation industry is. So unfortunately they'll probably, as they get into the industry, they'll probably have to experience something once they're in it, but that it's, if you have the passion to fly, then keep going. And even if you have a setback, you know, and you have to do something else for a while, if nobody's hiring, stay in it and keep after your passion because it's the job is worth it. It's a great job. I love going to work too. And I've loved going to work at every, everywhere I've worked. I haven't had um, one place that I was not happy with. So um, even though some of them had more struggles than others. So yeah, keep going no matter no matter what setbacks you might have at this time, it's going to get better. Yeah. And Ty? Yeah. That's pretty much what I think too. Um, I, I think you need to, you need to look at yourself and say, is this worth it? Do I love flying? Because it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be easy sometimes. And, uh, you know, just a year ago, it was, almost unprecedented the the kind of growth that we're having it was so easy to get into the majors and i'm going to have a spectacular career and that's great um but if you really want this you'll have to stick out the hard times too i mean we went through the 90s we went through 9 11 now we got to deal with this um but i i wouldn't i can't see myself being anywhere else this is uh, this is the job that we we did everything we could to get here, and uh, you you've got to have that kind of passion, I think. So mm-hmm. if you don't, do something else. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if you love this and you want this to be your life, go for it and just ride it out because things things change. Yeah, and I think uh, that conversation is a very popular one. Um, there are those in the industry that. You know, we show up, we go to work, and we love being there. We love the fact that we get to command an aircraft, uh, you know, through the skies. And we get to see views from the flight deck at 37, 38, 39,000 feet that most people of the world will never get to experience firsthand. And we get to fly with some amazing people most of the time, if not, I say almost all of the time are Mm -hmm. like-minded individuals, technical people, um, you know, with similar personalities. And you get to do this job, and it's amazing. And if you're coming to work and all you're talking about is being at home and not wanting to come in today and not wanting to fly, and the company's, you know, got me, you know, bent around an axle because they're making me, they changed my schedule, and I don't want to be here. Then find something, like you said, find something else to do because to be miserable flying an airplane you just you bring <laughs> that misery and it and it spreads like a virus <laughs> and everyone around you is like yeah. oh god really i'm gonna we fly with this guy here right yeah we we, we all have yeah here um i flew like i said i flew i've instructed six days a week flew charter on my seventh and three of those nights i went out and flew freight with my buddy to build time so i there were literally weeks that I had more time in the air than I did on the ground, just trying to get where I am. So if you have that kind of passion, go for it, stick it out. Yeah. Things, sometimes things suck. Sometimes are good, but 
Yeah. Well, one last question for us today. Uh, as we're wrapping it up, I want to, again, say thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and, you know, give your journeys uh, the the time they deserve uh, with the listeners and explaining to us how you've made it work throughout all these years. But the last question is this. I want both of you to think back to a person from your life that has made the greatest impact to your success in aviation and in your career. Who would that person be and why? He's leaving us with the toughest one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do you know? I do. I do. Um, I'm going to say it's Jessica Hurst. I'm not sure what her last name is now because I think she got divorced. She was the um, chief flight instructor at Wings Aviation when I first started. She's the person who hired me and uh, gave me my first paying gig doing this. And uh, I wanted to do it. I was all in. This, This was my career plan, but it wasn't real until she gave me my first job. So I, I think, I think Jessica is probably the person who had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've had so many good mentors throughout my career. Was it me? Well, oh, you're you one can. of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're definitely like, it's amazing. Like looking back how many really good friends they're like family that come from, you know, previous jobs Um, and friends. Like I'm still in touch with, you know, some people I flight instructed and um, many people from, from uh, all the, all the jobs. Um, But so I've had, I've had a lot of people help me along the way. Um, give good advice, just fun to, you know, great to fly with. Coming over to domestic air, I had so many people help me um, from previous, from trans states that worked there, a lot of them, and some at, at um, Sam Piper that were there all helped me um, do what they could to recommend me, help me get a job there. Um, so there's, there's, way too many to name just to all who helped me. But, um, I'd say just from starting out, um, and sharing the passion of aviation, probably my dad, you know, he, I now having kids and if they, you know, they want to learn how to, if they said they wanted to learn how to fly at 16, I don't know that I would be like, yes, let's go get you a lesson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that they were, you know, my dad and my mom, but that they were so supportive of letting me do that at such a young age and um, supporting me and doing it. And then my dad doing it along with me and letting me continue helping me to finish all my ratings and in college and um, always being supportive of my career after that, anything that they could do to help. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah, that was Yeah, and it's amazing, you know. It sometimes it they're the littlest of things, but they make the biggest impact. And you know, both your examples are are phenomenal. 
just to have that one person that you can think back. I mean, there were so many, like you said, Jerry, along the way, but that one person that really kind of made the deepest impact. Um, and it's, it's nice, I think, to, to think about them and to celebrate their impact. So I thank you for sharing those moments and those people with us here. Um, you know, if, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit before we wrap it up about what the industry is doing today. Um, I know that we're all kind of on the, the seat of our chairs here, leaning in to see if we can get any kind of clue of what's going to happen. The truth is we really don't know because, you know, we're talking about government loans and, and bailouts. We're talking about, you know, leave of, leaves of absences and canceled uh, new hire classes and, you know, suspended training and upgrades. And so it's a very stressful, a lot of anxiety is going on along, not just with the country, but with the pilot group in, in aviation. And I, I'm looking at all the feeds from fellow aviators out there, from people in general aviation, uh, flight instructing and, and working on their CFI or CFIs, working on applications to regionals and so on and so forth. And it's a really, it's a really stressful time right now. And I think it's important to kind of reiterate what both of you have been saying this whole time without getting into the detail of this pandemic of COVID-19, which is just stay calm. We're going to get through it. Just keep at it. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, this is a bump in the road. But every airline right now is daily coming up with um, ideas on how to survive this. And I can tell you that at Legacy Airlines, just yesterday, they announced that they have an LOA, a letter of agreement um, with the union, and they've all signed off on it. And what they're going to offer is any pilot over the age of 62 years old can take an early retirement. If they approve and accept the early retirement, they're going to get paid 50 hours of flight credit per month until their 65th birthday. So we're talking potentially three years of part-time pay to stay at home. Um, the reason they offered this is because they're trying to prevent having to furlough pilots, especially those that just went through training are out on the line. And unfortunately, if the airline has to do a 30% reduction in workforce, that's about 5,000 pilots over at Legacy Airlines. Um, yeah. And I fall within that. So I'm keeping an eye on it. I'm hoping enough people take this very generous early retirement or early out. Um, there are other factors at play with parking airplanes. I know that a lot of the international wide body pilots, uh, their schedules have been completely flipped upside down and they're no longer doing the international routes. So I've already been reassigned throughout this month. Um, a lot of the flying that I was going to do where I'm flying four legs in a trip. Uh, now I'm only flying three because one of them is a deadhead. Why? because they took the Airbus off that trip and put a 777 on there. So they're putting these international pilots on domestic routes to keep the, both the airplanes flying and the pilots flying. And they're really working hard at adjusting the schedule, reducing the flights to try to kind of weather out this storm. Is there anything going on over at Domestic Air that you can share with us that they're making an, an, a sort of effort to help you know, minimize yeah. the effects here? Um, you know, the, the one thing that, um, one thing about our, our company that I, 
I really like is that they, they have a very long history of not furloughing, even in tough times. Um, and I, I wasn't there, but right after 9-11, when most companies did furlough, uh, they came to the union and, and said, we would like to pi- pay your pilots a little bit less to keep everybody on property. And, uh, and the union signed off on it and all the pilots agreed. Right now there's a, um, kind of a, a social media campaign. We've got the, the guy that's the plug, the, the last guy on our seniority list. And it's uh, Save, I can't remember his name right now. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say it. Let's call him Bob. Save Bob <laughs> campaign. And and so the pilots are already petitioning the union and the company to take a little less pay just so we don't furlough. That's amazing. You know, and so that's just a testament yeah. of your work group there, your pilot work group, and the fact that they would campaign for that. Yeah, it's amazing to read all the, you know, the comments that, that different pilots are putting in, you know, to for this and how how overwhelming of a response it is yeah now hopefully it doesn't come to that i don't want to take less pay of course <laughs> but i will save bob <laughs> if i have to. it's time for t-shirts <laughs> save bob <laughs> that's right <laughs> well guys you know Thank you so much. This has been an amazing treat to listen to your journey, to listen to the struggles and the successes and how you navigated this you know, journey in aviation. And there are a lot of people that are interested in how they can you know, progress and navigate their journeys. And, and hearing how everyone else kind of has their unique way, I think really does help in the community. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, to sit down with me and have this discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Any last words you want to share with any of our listeners? Do a last word. (laughs) Say the last word. (laughs) Don't ever, ever call your first officer honey (laughs) over over the interphone, especially if you've got a stuck mic. That's my last word. (laughs) Sage advice, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> well guys thanks yeah, again enjoy, enjoy your career enjoy it's it a great absolutely one. thanks again uh for spending the time with us and i look forward to chatting with you again you too tony yeah thanks well ladies and gentlemen that wraps up episode 32 of squawk ident i would just like to say thanks again to ty and jerry for allowing me to interview them on their journey in aviation, not only as aviators, but as a couple going through the industry and all the challenges that surround that. You know, at a time when all this uh, pandemic crisis that the world is going through is bombarding us from every angle, from our phones to the TV to the radio and the internet and beyond, um, it is nice to kind of put that aside just for a moment and be able to talk to some people about aviation and the passions surrounding that. And again, I I hope you're enjoying Squawk Ident. It is these journeys that really keep me going and talking to people about their journey really has become another passion for me. And I hope uh, listening to the show is something that brings joy to you as well. So are you enjoying Squawk Ident? I'd love to hear about it. You can visit our website at 
www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, OscarNovemberYankee.com. There you can check out episode cover art that I produce for each independent episode. You can check out the episode archives, the pilot shop, and you can leave audio feedback as well. You can also contribute to the show and help us out with equipment, software, and marketing expenses by becoming a producer of Squawk Ident, either with a one-time donation or a monthly contribution, and PayPal is accepted. And now, check out the Flight Line Photos tab. There, I do my best to put up as many photos from the flight line as I can to share the experiences of what it's like to be out there on the flight line. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter users can also search Squawk Ident Podcast or on Twitter, Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to follow us on the socials. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, it would really help us out if you could just leave us a review, like, and share the show. So in closing, I would just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. And as always, wash your hands. Wash your hands.